What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today on the show, we're joined by Mark Ganey. Mark is the co-founder and executive chairman of Strava, an app for mostly runners and cyclists to track their physical activity and engage with others on its social network. We spoke about Mark's upbringing and early career, all the way up to what inspired him to start the company and his vision for the future of the space. Please enjoy our conversation with Mark Ganey. Mark, appreciate you uh, being here. You know, we can just sort of dive right in. Um, you know, excited to excited to chat about all things. You know, your life, your personal upbringing, and how you sort of ended up starting Strava, and how the experience has been, and you know, maybe some of the key takeaways that you can share with you know people listening, and then also your thoughts on the future of the space and you know where it's going. Because I'm sure you know there's a lot of exciting things still to come. So. Um, why don't we, yeah, why don't we kick things off? I think I, I saw that you were born in Denver, Colorado, but raised in Reno, uh, Nevada. So tell us what life was like in Reno. You know, what were you into? What kind of, you know, what kind of kid were you? And then we can go from there. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Thanks guys. Uh, well, <clears throat> most people think of Reno as, uh, you, you either go to gamble or get divorced. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I had to overcome a lot of sort of misperceptions, but as a kid growing up there, <clears throat> Frankly, it was fantastic. I mean, you're, you know, we're at 5,000 feet. We got the Sierra Nevadas. We got Lake Tahoe half an hour away. Uh, you've got the mountains. Uh, I remember as a kid, you know, starting in first grade, they would close the school every Wednesday at noon to uh, bus us up to the local ski resort, you know, to teach us how to ski. That was basically PE uh, back in the 70s. So, you know, my upbringing was living outdoors, riding bikes, you know, BMX in the dirt uh, with my friends. Um, just, you know, lots of soccer. That was kind of my sport as a kid growing up. Um, and then uh, as high school approached, it turned out I was a pretty good runner. And so, and I, and I was really fortunate, guys, to be on this fantastic team. Uh, it was at Reno High School, and uh, we were just very fortunate to have this group of guys that uh, came together at that time and won a bunch of state championships and, you know, my love for the sport. But, yeah, Reno was just one of those special places that um, – yeah. I mean, even summer jobs, my summer jobs were in Lake Tahoe, you know, basically pumping gas at a local marina and yep. uh, enjoying the water. Was, were you uh, just, would you say you were like a product of your environment a little bit or did it kind of run in the family to be like an athlete and just kind of be into sports and all that? I think it was the product of the environment. I mean, my parents were super supportive and just always kept us active, but it, it, no one else in my family likes to run the way I do. Uh, actually, my, my younger brother, I have a younger brother and a younger sister and they're both uh, they're both active in their own rights and we all did the same sports and things. Um, my dad was a physician, so he was always, you know, busy at the hospital and my mom was, was stay at home and, and had the hard job and taking care of the three of us. But no, I think you're right, Pat. It was very much sort of just product of environment and, uh, and that time, right. I'm, I'm, I gotta admit, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm a, the generation, I'm 53 years old. So that was a time where you could go out and be gone for hours and no one really cared. Mark, how did running make you feel? Ah, you know, that's a great one, Posh. You know, the the thing that I really came to appreciate about running were a couple of things. Um, one was just the simple fact that it's just you against yourself. Like, it, you know, even when I was on the team and so forth, it's very much sort of just pursuing what's possible for you. And to be on a team and, and so forth, th those are added dimensions. But for me, I think there was just always testing of limits that uh, that running has this funny way of doing it. We often refer at Strava to type two fun, right? Type one fun is you're having fun in the moment. It's great. You're enjoying yourself. 
type two fun is often in the moment. It's, it's not very fun. Like it, it hurts. It's kind of painful, but then you finish and that sense of sort of satisfaction and elation and accomplishment running did that for me over and over. Um, I also have, my parents will tell you, I had these funny memories of, I think it was like sixth grade and I learned about cross country and I, I can't explain to you why, but I just thought it was really cool to be able to go out and run over logs and across trails and just, just kind of do stupid stuff like that. And it's been with me ever since. So yeah. And today it's meditative. Honestly, like if I don't get 30 minutes in doing something active, forget my physical well-being. It's, it's a mental state that is really what keeps me going. Yeah, I, I took a peek at your Strava profile. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit because I noticed you, you know, you definitely run a lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I guess, um, you know, talking about, you know, being as a kid, like, you know, being into sports and all this, did you think you would be like a professional athlete when you grew up or did you have other aspirations as well? No, it wasn't about being professional, but it was about, um, I think my parents were really good at, at, and something I even tell my, I've got twin boys now and it's like, look, don't really care what you pursue, but whatever it's going to be, try, try and do it well. And so I think whatever I was doing, whether it was, I mean, academically, I was, I was a good student. I wasn't always the best student, but, but I tried, uh, with the sports, I wanted to see how far I could push. And, um, you know, it probably was, I go back to coaches who were incredibly supportive and, and sort of just having that ecosystem around you uh, and being able to push. So it wasn't about professional endeavors. I, I wish I could tell you that I, my parents will say that there was some entrepreneurial blood that was flowing in there from pretty early on. Uh, I was always kind of thinking about businesses, but I, it really wasn't until I got to college that I then started to think about what, what makes me tick from a professional side. And, and that's where ironically that the two did come together, sports and sports and entrepreneurship. And Mark, you must've been smart enough to get into Harvard, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not a bad school. It's not like, you know, the best. Yeah, it's, not, but, it's not USC. Is it? Yeah. It's not USC. <laughs> yeah. It's not USC, but it's not that bad. Yeah. Um, did you want to pursue sports there? I mean, why, why did you choose Harvard? I assume if you got into Harvard, you got into other schools as well. Why Harvard? Yeah, it, funny story. So honestly, kid from Reno, Nevada, Harvard wasn't on the radar at all. Um, my dad had gone to Cornell back east, and uh, so I was familiar with some of the Ivy League schools and was looking at that. In fact, I was thinking about the hotel school at the time at, at Cornell, and uh, I was being recruited. Uh, again, just being on this team was pretty special, and then I was fortunate enough my senior year in high school to, to win the individual state championship, so I kind of had that in my back pocket and was garnering some interest. And it was because of that, that the Harvard coaches reached out to me. Um, again, this is 1985, 1986. And they sent me a nice letter just saying, Hey, we've seen your SAT scores and uh, your accomplishments in running. Would you ever consider it Harvard? And I remember my, my father uh, at the time was like, look, whether you decide to apply or not, you're going to do him the courtesy of writing back and thanking them for that note and, you know, fill out the application. And, um, I really, at the time, like, again, kid from Reno, like, why, why would I go to Harvard? That's a bunch of, bunch of really smart, geeky people. And I'm not going to fit in. But I did fill out the application and they continued to recruit. And I had the opportunity to visit in the spring. And honestly, Posh, at the end of the day, the way I made the decision was, well, I don't know if I'm going to fit in here or not, but it's probably a lot easier to transfer from Harvard to somewhere <laughs> else than it is yep. to transfer up to there. Yep. So I kind of figured, like, let me give it a shot. Yeah. And, and see what would happen. 
So strategic. I mean, it's nice to have like a position of leverage with Harvard, right? Where you're like, look, I don't have to come. I know you want me. But I, I, I don't need to go there. I can do whatever I need to do anywhere else. I don't know if I thought about it as leverage, but I definitely was like option value. Okay, right. where, where do I have the greatest option value? And I think, well, right. they, they were kind enough to to give me a shot. Let me let me go see what this might be like. The great irony was I, I didn't run when I got there. I was injured, and then you know that that led to an opportunity to join the crew program. Mm-hmm. So I to this day I've I've always felt indebted to the track and field and cross country coaches at Harvard because they gave me the chance, and then I didn't actually fulfill my obligation. I, I shifted over to a different sport, but. Yeah, yeah. Fond, fond memories. Was it was it a bad injury? Like, I mean, was it something that really set you back, like in other areas, or or was it just you know you decided I, I, maybe I should do something else? You you know, it was a little bit of both. What happened was I showed up my freshman year with stress fracture, uh, stress fracture in my lower leg, which kept me from competing that fall. And then there was a little bit of boy, I've been running a long time, and um, I, I I was struggling a little bit with like how do I get my motivation back? Great team, really good group of of men and women on that team and so forth. And it was just this crazy situation where uh, again back in the mid '80s, the crew coaches were pretty smart. They would go around recruiting from other teams and and you know literally like roaming the dining halls looking for, in my case, you know a tall skinny guy with a big set of lungs. And uh, a very long story short. I was introduced to the, the head of the lightweight program there, and um, he put me in a boat. I, I went out, and I was hooked. And so in some ways, I was able to take a lot of those things that drove me to enjoy running, but now apply it to just a slightly different sport in a different team dynamic and, and learning a whole new set of skills. Um, I, I could pull pretty good, but you know, I, I was not a rower growing up in Reno, Nevada. So that that was just the easy transition. And, and frankly, the Ivy League is unique in that, you know, these aren't athletic scholarships. Uh, they have financial aid, but they were very supportive of me switching over. It wasn't like there was some drawn out negotiation. They, they just were happy to see me, you know, happy and, and pursuing other athletic endeavors. You know, I'm yeah. curious, and I'm sure it's a little bit out of order here, but, you know, what did those track and field cross country coaches say when they eventually I, I mean, I assume they eventually knew that you started Strava. You know, was there ever <laughs> was there ever any sort of communication there, or um, you know, between you and them, or them and you? Uh, well, it's it's so it's funny. I haven't seen uh, Frank Haggerty was a coach at the time. I haven't talked to the track and cross country folks, but there was the gentleman, one of the two gentlemen who actually uh, hosted me when I was out there. Uh, just checking out the program as a senior in high school and was able to stay in the room. So one of the top runners, his name is Paul Gompers. He's now a professor at Harvard Business School and teaches entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial finance. And he now teaches the Strava case study. And, and oh, wow. so, you know, a couple of times a year, he and I will connect and I'll, I'll guest there and and do that. And that's, that's really fun because we go back to some fond memories. But ironically, Posh, the connection that I have now, and, and there's a lot of connection to it, the Harvard crew program, uh, and Strava, those ties are, are inextricable. I mean, they're, it's, it's deep. And Charlie mm-hmm. Butt, who's was my coach at the time and is now the head of the whole program, um, yeah, we, we probably connect at least a couple times every year. It's it's great. That's awesome. I mean, deep That's roots. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you, know, you mentioned like at the time when you got to college, you started having more of these like entrepreneurial sort of 
things, you know, in your head and you're like wanted thoughts. to grab thoughts, I guess. Um, the bug. And and I guess what you know, how did that come about? Like what did you sort of envision that you would do maybe once you graduated college and you know, like just give us kind of that rundown there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so two quick stories that give you sort of a sense of how sort of rambling I was. So my first entrepreneurial opportunity was uh, my junior year. I actually was injured again. So I'm, you'll, you'll see a common thread, which is that I tend to, to play hard, get injured. And then, so I was injured my junior year. I had a back injury that kept me out of the program for a bit. And I had a good friend a guy named Chris Moore. And he and I figured out that uh, we could probably get some pretty good spending money if we created a concessions business for all the non-mainstream sports. So, you know, imagine you go to football game or the basketball game, there's professional concessions that have all the popcorn and pizza and so forth. But for indoor track or, you know, women's volleyball or, you know, swimming, there was nobody offering, you know, Cokes and hot dogs. So he and I would literally go to the local grocery store. We'd pile in the, the, the trunk of his car, all these hot dog buns and so forth and six packs of Coke. And we'd show up and, and sell this stuff. And Turned out, you know, the margin was great. You know, you can get a hot dog and a bun for nine cents and turn around and sell for two bucks to your fellow students and hey, great spending money. So that to me was like the first example of, oh, I love this. Like we're kind of creating it and figuring out the finances and, uh, you know, it was short lived because once I went back and started competing again, then my time was was precious. But that that little kernel was an opportunity. Now, when it came time to graduating, totally different story. Mm-hmm. I I didn't apply for jobs my senior year. I was focused on trying to make the national team as a rower. That's where I was going. And uh, in a cruel twist of fate, I, I went home for about a week after graduation um, just to vacation before I would start my training. And I, I blew out my lower back. And uh, so that that kind of was a this dark period that sort of forced me into a whole reevaluation of, okay, Wow, what am I going to do now that I've graduated and, and maybe rowing isn't in my future? But yeah, it took me a while wanna, to get back to the entrepreneurial part. I want to talk about this in a second, but um, before we do, uh, you know, kind of going back to the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial part, um, you know, obviously experience is something, but oftentimes you hear people who are interested in entrepreneurship might be inspired by somebody, whether it's like a family member, whether it's somebody in history that started a business and was successful. Like, was there anyone for you? when you were in college that you sort of looked up to as an entrepreneur that you're like, I, I want to do that. I want to be what he is or she is. Yeah. I mean, we had good family friends that owned businesses in, in, in Reno at the time, you know, literally like a construction business and so forth that, that were close and that frankly were good mentors to me. There's a guy named Dave Clark, who I, to this day remains a good friend uh, that I admired for what they had done, kind of built something from scratch and so forth. And as I mentioned, my dad was a physician, so it was different, but he was actually an electrical engineer before um, that's what he did his undergrad in. And my dad had literally gone and in his free time had designed and built and distributed a, a ski product. Um, and so I sort of, I would say early, those were maybe some of the mentor people that I admired, you know, heroes were pretty close to home. You have to move forward a few years, Pat. And uh, once I started my first job out of school, which was frankly, a job where I got to call entrepreneurs all day long. That was literally my job was to get on the phone and we used to call it dialing for deals. I was looking for investment opportunities for a private equity firm. And that's where I really started to connect with entrepreneurs and, and start to find my heroes, my, you know, the people that I admired and, and wanted to try to emulate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that was your first job. How did you even come across private equity? Like did 
you know, it sounded like it sounded like in college you weren't even focused on anything but but being a rower and going, you know, to the national team. And then, you know, a lot of people I feel like have this strong focus of trying to get into private equity after college and just somehow don't end up there. But you didn't. So I'm curious how that happened. Yeah. No. <clears throat> so uh lots of twists and turns. The very short version is blow out my back. I'm now sitting at home in Reno. I've got two parents like, hey, this is great. We paid for your education. You need to find a job. There were resumes that went out across the country over this six to nine month period. This is now 1990, 1991. Not the best economic environment at the time. A lot of my peers had actually lost their jobs and uh, I had them out everywhere. And it was uh, a classic situation where it took about six, seven months. I started my job at the firm called TA Associates in the spring of 91. And it was one of these crazy things where I was in the Bay Area interviewing with another company, which where I failed miserably, like the interview was a disaster. It was with an economic consulting firm, had no business applying for that job. Sitting in a hotel room, kind of licking my wounds. I get a call from my mother. She says, some company just called and said, they're in the Bay Area. They've got an office there. Would you be willing to come in and spend an hour with them? Who is it? It's a firm called TA Associates. I don't really know what they do, but kind of two degrees of separation. And I got lucky. I interviewed with somebody who really loved to hire athletes. They just found that hiring athletes to do the job, which was to basically get on the phone and be willing to make cold calls, was a pretty good match. And, Why do you uh, think that is? Because I've, I've noticed that too. And, you know, former athletes that do really well in like a sales environment or something that is related to people and dealing with people like why i mean besides the obvious fact of like you know being a team player and that, all that kind of stuff is there anything else that you think makes an athlete so good at that well i can speak for endurance athletes but actually i think it's true across anything it goes back to that type two fun i talked about which is that yeah. we seem to enjoy suffering i think athletes are <laughs> just generally pretty good at sort of recognizing that if you want really good things you got to you got to work. And, and right. the work is often not that glamorous, not that fun. Um, but the payoff on the other side is pretty special. I, I, I want to just take what you just said, Mark, and kind of hone in on it. Because I feel like what you just said is true. But also, and this has really nothing to do with maybe being a founder or this podcast, but I think it's interesting, is that the athletes of today, at least those in the mainstream in certain sports, don't it doesn't feel like they necessarily have that mentality of you know we like the struggle and it's become more about the end result as opposed to the process right like and even at my workplace a lot of the guys and gals are ex-athletes and it, it, it's a nice place to be because everybody understands that you know there's you win some you lose some but you got to focus on the process not the results right what what changed right like i mean in in the last i could i guess 10 to 20 years where you have athletes that are more focused on, you know, results perhaps and the fame and the tension than the process, right? And of course I'm generalizing here. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are. I think we're, we're probably just brainstorming a bit together. I, my quick reaction is that um, the sheer volume of media and, and the social media aspects and, and the way in which somebody can be successful without actually not having reached perhaps the echelon of their sport, but because they're, they're good in a six second soundbite or they're, they're 
there, I mean, that's, that's at least one, there's probably yeah. many factors associated with it, but that's the one that I point to. I look sure. at it, you know, I'm raising two boys who are now 20 years old and I can see sort of the impact that, that a lot of these uh, elements have had on their life. And I feel for the athletes, it's a little bit of like, what defines success? Is it, is it number of uh, views and hits on Instagram or is it actually going out and, and uh, pursuing your life's dream of whatever it might be accomplishing climbing Everest or, or sure. attempting to win gold in, in Beijing. Um, and I, I think it's a hard one because I think they're, they're trying to balance a lot of those. For sure. And I, and I agree. And, the, and the, the deeper reason why I asked is because I know that there's folks that listen to our podcast that were athletes, are athletes or are parents of athletes. I mean, we have a wide range of listeners, so they might fit into any of those categories. And I almost worry that some of the athletes these days have a different mindset and aren't necessarily focused on, well, what happens if, God forbid, I do get injured or I don't get drafted or I do get drafted and then I get injured or then I do get drafted, I play, but I'm not as good or I don't cut it out or the team doesn't like me. And then what's next, right? What, in your opinion, as a, you know, I I don't want to call you a former athlete because you're still an athlete, but as an athlete... What is your advice to those that, you know, are currently, you know, in competitive sports about their future beyond sports or future beyond whatever athletic program they're in? Yeah. I I guess what I would say, the thing that I've appreciated is that it's, if you've decided that being active and being athletic is, is part of your DNA, is part of your life, then it is a lifelong journey of which there will be many, many chapters. And I think about my own, my own ride has been from, I mean, many would argue that I, I eclipsed my senior year in high school. I mean, I want to, I want to state championship and from ever there, you know, from there on, it was downhill. Uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to make the Harvard crew team, but you know, there were many rowers there that were much better than I was. Uh, I could just, I could pull hard. I was in what they call the engine room in the boat. I, don't, don't put me in a place where I had to balance the boat or, or, you know, lead it in any stretch. So, and, and since that time I've gone and competed whatever in marathons and, and Ironmans, but I'm not, I'm not winning these competitions. I'm simply enjoying the picking a challenge and how close can I come to accomplishing it? And as I mentioned to you, I've, 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 I was 10 days away from doing an Ironman event and I had a bicycle accident. It cost me 13 surgeries to come back. I, I was like, you know, over a, a course of a number of years. So I think my advice is it's, it's a man maintaining perspective. Why, why are you deciding to be athletic or why are you deciding to be active? And for me, it's a lifelong passion. It's, it's a journey of which, and this is why Strava is so important. Michael and I, when we founded Strava, it was very much around if it just solves a problem for he and I, if we're the only two customers, it's a win. And the problem we were trying to solve was it's really hard to stay motivated when life gets in the way. Like we love being active. We love competing. We love having that feeling of being fit, but man, it's, it's tough to do when you're trying to build the rest of your life, whether it's professionally, whether it's personally, whether it's raising family and, and having a partner in life. And so to, sorry, a very long answer. Oh no, no, that's what I was looking. For. That's what I was looking for. That journey, and I think once you appreciate it, then you can maintain the perspective, and that's yeah. that's where I feel really lucky. You, yeah. you mentioned Michael, who's who's your co-founder in Strava, Michael Horvath. I think if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Tell us, uh, you know, how you guys met, um, and uh, you know, kind of the early kind of days of. I think you you guys started another company together right before Strava. 
Um, tell us about that. Well, I guess before you do, how did the dial in for dollars go? I mean, did you do well? You know, was it was it a, <laughs> was it something that you liked or or not really? Uh, it was something that I grew into, uh, like anything else, uh, type two fun. It was, uh, I think if you talk to the partners I work for, great, great guys, still my mentors to this day, um, really enjoyed working for, I worked for three partners in Palo Alto and uh, it was hard. You know, early on, I was trying to call tech companies um, uh, that I wasn't familiar with. I graduated with a degree in fine arts. I basically studied art <laughs> history. So I had no business calling on, you know, Unix developers and, and uh, uh, kind of networking companies, but I learned. I learned how to talk the lingo, and and over time, they gave me more and more freedom. The partners allowed me to call, and by the time I was finishing, I, I spent four and a half years there, so I, I probably overstayed my welcome. Typically, it's like two years, and then you go on to business school, but I stuck around for just over four years, and you know, I was calling. You, you mentioned earlier, like, who was a hero? I had the opportunity to get Jim Gennard on the phone and he was the founder of Oakley sunglass mm. company. And what an amazing guy and an amazing story. Uh, if you ever get a chance, you got to get him on his podcast. I mean, my story is I'm boring. writing his name down right now. Yeah. <laughs> he, amazing, amazing. And, and so that's what became fun for me was that I had the opportunity to just get on and, and collect these stories from these individuals. And um, it, it definitely lit a fire by 1995. I was like, Maybe I'm just going to go launch a pizza a, a pizza shop or you know something really simple, but I've got to go do this. I've got a, an itch that I have to scratch. Mm. So, how did you meet your co partner uh, co founder? Uh, ironically, the crew team. So he was two years ahead of me. He was class of '88. I was class of '90. And uh, when I joined uh, that class in particular, really took me under their wing. Uh, Michael and a handful of his friends were kind enough to kind of invite me in and show me the ropes. And Michael, even after he graduated, stayed very close to the program, um, uh, was actually doing some coaching. And so he and I just, we became close friends then. And he went off and got his PhD in economics. Um, and, uh, and ironically ended up in California teaching at Stanford. And that's when he and I kind of really reconnected because now both of us were here in the Bay area. Okay, I'm not sure uh, if you mentioned it, but why did you end up leaving TA Associates? Like, did you, were you did you were you like over the job, or did you want to do something else? And then, uh, yeah. it really was that that entrepreneurial bug, you know. Yeah. And you have to think back. 1995 was an interesting time, and in that this was really the birth of the commercial internet, right? And it was just starting. So there was a part of that where I'm like, there's something going on here. Um, it was there was a little bit of, as I mentioned to you, like. I kind of overstayed my welcome to begin with. Typically someone stays for, you know, maybe two, three years and then they go back to business school. And I, I wasn't a student. I, I was living with a bunch of business school students. So I used to joke. It's like, ah, I'll just, I'll take advantage of their education, but I'm not going to go back and, and try to do graduate school. And so it was just one of those moments where um, I needed to figure out what was next. And again, having talked to all these entrepreneurs, I, I just felt like I will regret a little bit like we talked about earlier, I was going to regret not trying Harvard. Uh, maybe it's not going to work, but let me try it and then and have the option value. Mm -hmm. It was the same thing around entrepreneurship. I felt like, okay, I've got four years at TA Associates. I've got no debt. I, I'm not. I'm recently married, but we don't have a mortgage to pay. Like the risk is really low to go try to start something. I don't know what that thing is, but now is the is the window. And worst case scenario, I remember telling Lisa, who was my wife at the time, it's like, okay, worst case, give me a year and a half. 
at least I'll have a great application for business school. Like if that's the worst thing that happens, you know, I'll be able to go back. And so that was the thesis back then. Yeah. And yeah, again, I got lucky. So what so, did you, yeah. What did you end up doing? Or I guess Posh, did you have another question? Yeah. So I know you had mentioned that Horvath was now in at Stanford teaching economics, if I'm not mistaken, how did you guys reconnect or were you guys already keeping in touch at the time? And he just happened to be out there. Yeah, no, we, we were definitely friends the whole time. Uh, we had, we'd run marathons together in the early nineties and things when he was studying in Chicago, that's where he got his PhD. So we were always close. And then you fast forward to that 95 time frame where I've now left TA associates and I'm trying to start something. Um, it was pretty funny. So I'll tell you, like, so here's what I did. I, I left the firm. Uh, first thing I had to do was figure out how to, I got to figure out how to make ends meet. Like, even though I worked for a venture capital firm, I was not a venture capitalist. Like I, I did not have millions of dollars sitting in my bank account. So I negotiated with my landlord. I started cleaning his pool in exchange for a discount on the, on my rent. And then I went down to a local running store, a little place called Metro sport. And I got a job getting eight, eight bucks an hour to sell running shoes. But my theory was number one, like that's a good kind of job to just punch the clock for a few hours and then go work on my startup and no one will feel bad about it. <laughs> um, and then I started trying to recruit friends because entrepreneurship is lonely. And I was really hoping I could find a co-founder. And um, there were two or three folks uh, that I talked pretty hard to. And, and one of them was Michael. He was uniquely positioned. He was a professor at Stanford. He had a high-speed internet connection in his office, which was that was like gold Huge. in 95. Very big value add, yeah. A very big value add. Um, and he was willing to sit and listen to my a lot of my dumb ideas. And uh, yeah, we just kind of, we hit it off. And I think, you know, he tells the story better than I do. But he, yeah. over time, he just realized oh, this could be fun. As uh, In his case, he sort of moonlighted as an entrepreneur. He, he stayed in academia uh, through that first business. But Yeah. You know, one thing that just stood out to me from what you just said uh, is – Kind of this thing about ego, right? That um, I feel like someone who's you know four or five years into their career working in like finance, private equity, and then being able to leave and like go clean pools and work at the local shop for like eight bucks an hour. I mean, that's something that I feel like a lot of people wouldn't be able to do because of the ego or because of just being used to certain lifestyle or or what have you. I mean, is that something that you've thought about at all? Or is that something that you, you're intentional about at all? Like, what, I mean, do you have any thoughts to share about that? Because I feel like it's probably not as common as one might yeah. think. I'm actually, I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up because it's, it's an area that I spend a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs about. And there's two things I always bring back that I have fond memories of that. One is you're right. You got to check your ego at the door. I mean, here I was with a Harvard degree and I'd been working in venture capital and so forth. And I made a choice. Like I, I really felt like I, I needed to see what this startup thing was all about and could I do it? And so because of that, the choice was actually fairly easy. Like I had to figure out how to pay the monthly rent and, and put food on the table. And, you know, Lisa was super supportive and, and, and willing to help me in that. She was a preschool teacher at the time. And so were you guys married at the time? We were, we'd been married six months. Um, the good news was her dad had been an entrepreneur. Unfortunately, he'd passed away before I met him, but he had, he'd been an entrepreneur himself. So I think she, she sort of understood what she was getting into at some level. And, um, so I, two things, one is I found it actually pretty easy. Like just check the ego. It's, it's because I was pursuing what I wanted to go do, which was to get something off the ground. 
The other thing that I learned in hindsight, to this day, one of my best friends was my manager from Metro Sport, from the running store. His name is Tomas. He now sells real estate in Portland, Oregon. The greatest guy. And what happened was I joined this little running store and start selling shoes and you start to meet these other people who are there and they all have really interesting stories. They're all sort of in the midst of transition and, and thinking about what's next in life. And we ended up developing these incredible friendships that have now lasted 30 years. So you're exactly right. Like this idea that somehow there's a template for you're supposed to take this step, this step, step, step to, uh, to success. It's just, it's a false premise. Yeah. And, and, you know, as an entrepreneur and even as a founder, CEO, whatever, it, it is very difficult to check your ego at the door, especially when you reach a level of success. I think maybe early on when you, you kind of get humbled and you're struggling. And I think being an athlete probably helps with that because of what you said earlier about, you know, you enjoy the struggle, right? That type two fun that you keep bringing up. It, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, and I'm curious how you've handled it, you know, and maybe we could touch upon it now or later but we'll touch about now since we're talking about it how has that changed for you you know being an entrepreneur now for so long being a leader like have you struggled with that at times where you're like i gotta check my ego at the door or how do you do it and what's your advice to those that are in positions of authority and leadership that you know maybe forget that that you know the ego is talking sometimes and not just you know them yeah so Again, here's where I was blessed early on, and it's just stuck with me forever. So one of the advantages, I didn't realize it until later, but one of the advantages of going and starting my first company when I was 25, 26, and had no business starting a company, because I had, again, zero operating experience, no management experience, had never sold or marketed anything. But what that did, because that was my background or lack of background, I immediately said, well, I got to go find amazing people who, who know how to do this stuff. Right. Uh, and so I very quickly learned humility, which is that I don't know how to, you don't want me touching software. I, I can't write code to save my life, even though I've founded two software companies. I've, <laughs> when, when my sales team, so the original company we built was an enterprise software company. I'll never forget, you know, a gentleman named Paul was our VP of sales there. And he used to joke, we got to get Mark in the room for the first 30 seconds because he's got the vision and will help the potential customer understand, but we got to get him out before he gives the software away for free. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't sell, I couldn't market, I couldn't write the code, but I knew that, like I recognized that. And so my job was how do I just bring an amazing team together to go do this? And that's carried forward now again for 25, 30 years, which is I'm, I'll bring the enthusiasm. I've got the ideas. I got a good sense of vision where we want to go, but it doesn't happen without an amazing team. Yeah. Period. End of discussion. And so it's my job to see if I can just find those teammates and bring them together. And and it it morphs over time as, as any good team. You know, we're we're just about to watch. I think you guys are down in L.A. Right? I mean, we're just about to watch. You know, uh, you know the L.A. Rams, and they've they've put together. A, Pretty special team right now. Unfortunately, as a 49er fan, I'm not happy about it, but but that's what you do. And uh, that, I think, has been able to keep my ego in check. I, I just recognized from day one, it doesn't happen without a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, it's it's one of the best parts about yeah. entrepreneurship. And, you know, that's very admirable. And I think that, you know, I was joking about it with somebody yesterday that, you know, a lot of these, like, leadership coaches – 
like have never been leaders. And I almost wish that, you know, leaders would be leadership coaches, but then this individual said that, well, leaders are too busy leading. So, you know, they can't be leadership coaches, but that's why we have podcasts like this so that people can hear and learn from folks like you. Um, you know, there was something that you touched upon earlier, uh, which was, you know, looking for a co-founder. And I think that that's something that, uh, is an interesting topic for a lot of folks, uh, who have ideas or want to be entrepreneurs, but realize that perhaps, you know, they don't have a skill set or they don't have a specific skill set or that they just don't want to do it alone because it is mentally taxing. You know, I know that, you know, your eventual co-founder was a good friend of yours, but did you talk to other people and what was that process like for you? Yeah, I did. I mean, um, I, I won't, I won't disclose their names now since they turned <laughs> me down and, and they're still good friends, but you know, there were a number of folks that were here in the Bay area that I was, I was showing them my business plan and it was, uh, it was with the you know thesis that you, you want to do this with me, right? You want to go do it? And Totally understood at the end of the day why it was not going to be the right thing for them. But I was of the mindset of, frankly, the two things you just said. One is it's lonely. I'd love to have somebody I could do this with. And two, I kind of recognize that there's certain things about the way that I see the world where if I could balance it. And Michael was a perfect, I think the reason we've been such tremendous business partners now for 30 years is that we are wired differently. We're, 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 we're compatible in many ways. We're both competitive. We both, uh, we're, hopefully you get a chance to meet him at some point. I'm sorry he's not even here tonight, but it's, you, you just see that there's a lot of similarities between the two of us, but then there's some fundamental differences. And just the simple, by telling you he is a PhD in economics, that almost says everything. Like yep. Michael is my, he is my data god. He is the person who understands the numbers in ways that, Forget it. I would never do. Um, uh, the way he, he approaches problems, he loves to go solve the problems himself and, and really dig in and really understand the data. I, I tend to immediately say, I'm going to go find somebody who's mm -hmm. an expert in this. And, and you know, let me go figure out where the experts are and have them help me understand it. So that's, uh, that's ultimately, again, got lucky because I don't think I recognized it back in 1995, but that's why we've been together so long. Yeah. So you said it was an enterprise software company. What exactly were you guys doing and how did that all sort of go? Like what was the end result? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. So, yeah. so here's the great irony. Here I am, the founder of Strava. 1995 was when we wrote the business plan for Strava. It was not called Strava at the time. It was called Kana Sports. Kana was the name of my dog. Why do we name it after the dog? Because Jim Gennard from Oakley named his company after his dog. So I'm like, okay, well, that's good karma. So I'll do that. And we were trying to build a virtual locker room for a bunch of athletes to come together to keep us motivated circa 1995. That was, that was the business plan that I started going out and pitching and talking to companies. And the very short version was great idea, wrong time. But what it did was by having conversations with people, it introduced us to another problem. We started talking to a lot of the sporting goods companies because we were hoping that they would actually become our partners and, you know, uh, sponsors and advertisers on this virtual locker room. And what they were telling us was, you know, we've just invested a million dollars in this website and we're struggling because we're getting all these customer emails from consumers, but our business is predicated on selling to, to the retailers. In fact, as a, as a manufacturer of running shoes or skis or bicycles, our customer is the retailer, not the end consumer. 
Yet on the internet, there's this whole problem because the consumer is coming directly to, again, trekbikes.com or k2skis.com. And so we were hearing that going, that's crazy. Why would you spend a million dollars and not want to talk to your customer? That, that, that seems insane. And we sort of figured to ourselves at the time, well, maybe if we can solve that problem, they'll get excited about our virtual locker room. Mm-hmm. So we started kind of parallel processing, sort of exploring how do we solve customer email and assume somebody else had done it in another industry and we could just bring it to sports. And it turned out nobody had. It turned out that this was a problem that was universal, um, whether you were at the time, whether you were Yahoo or eBay or Chase Manhattan Bank or Ford Motor Company, it didn't matter. If you were beginning to build your business online, you were suffering with high volumes of customer email and no real systems to handle it. And so a, a very long story short, we we pivoted, you know, we evolved, we, we put a kind of put Kana Sports on the back burner because we realized that there were a bunch of reasons why that probably won't work. But this customer email thing has some has some legs. And uh, we found some folks to help us code some software to help us think through that. And um, amazing experience between 1996 and 2000. We took it from two guys and a dog to 1200 employees. We, we took it public in 99. I think our market cap at its peak was like 11 billion. Um, it's a good business. I mean, we were generating hundreds of millions in revenue, um, kind of had every dot com on the planet using our software to manage their customer communications and learned a lot. Um, it was it was really trial by fire. Um, some wow. unfinished business. You know, we yeah. were also there in 2000, 2001 when yep. when the nuclear winter hit the uh, that first dot com bust. But um, yeah, great, great. That's what pretty much got me hooked. I will be an entrepreneur uh, forever after that. Because of that, that's incredible! Wow. And so, I mean, what ended up ultimately happening? Did you just, you know, want again want to do something different? Did you, you know, feel like you overstayed your welcome again in your own company, or, 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 or you know, what happened that you know, obviously you ended up, uh, you know, launching Strava? So you had yeah. this like, idea in the back of your head that you always like were passionate about. Clearly, um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, so we we got to we got to a point uh, in mid nineteen ninety nine. There were there were a bunch of things going on with the company. There were acquisition offers, and we realized that uh, it probably was an opportune time to take the company public. And so we hired a CEO. I recruited a CEO to come in and and run the business. I became president and chairman in title, but really we had a new CEO running everything. And I stuck around for another year. Uh, learned a lot from this CEO. I mean, we made. We took the company public together, and then we made four acquisitions. Um, I think at the time we literally made the largest acquisition in software history. We we acquired a company at the time for like four and a half billion dollars. I mean, we did some crazy stuff. <laughs> but by summer of two thousand, I candidly I felt like a fish out of water. I, I while I had hired this person to come in, it was pretty clear that he and I were not on the same page, and. I recognized I'd given up the steering wheel. I was sitting in the back seat. I, I couldn't be a backseat driver. That wasn't going to be healthy. And uh, we'd also been trying hard to start a family uh, for a number of years and had not been successful doing it. And I was beginning to realize that I was part of the problem, that uh, just my work life and so forth wasn't compatible there. So so I left. I retired in, in 2000. Um, uh, and the business remained independent. It, it actually survived through the through the bust and the, the nuclear winter and, and so forth. And then it went on. It, it had kind of a funny history. It, it, it was privatized by KKR at one point and then taken back out and so forth. But 
my the chapter for me ended in the summer of 2000. And um, then I spent a number of years serving on some boards and uh, doing some activity like that while I was starting to raise the family. And, uh, and then by about 2006, 2007, I really had the itch again, Michael and I both and, yeah. and, and they worked together again. And I imagine that was, you know, that was around the time when like social media was like really t- starting to take off and, you know, you had like the MySpaces and Facebook had just kind of come into the picture. And so was that part of the reason, like you felt like timing was better now to restart this idea? So it's funny that there are a couple of things happened. When we got together, we actually got together in Vail, Colorado in August of 2006. And we sat down for three days together and said, what do we want to go do? What, what, what kind of business do we want to start? And we actually spent a bunch of time, even without saying what idea are we going to, uh, are we going to follow, we actually spent a lot of time looking at if we had been founders of other companies, what would they have been? Uh, what companies do we admire out there? And the really telling thing was the more we built that list, the more we realized, well, it's definitely not enterprise software again. We're not doing that again. And when we started to make the list, we realized there was a common thread, which was they were consumer-based and they were kind of iconic brands. They were, it was the Patagonias and the Virgins and the, uh, the Oakleys of the world that had kind of touched a nerve, uh, maybe with a very specific audience, but they'd kind of lasted time and, and had just built this trust with their consumer. And so that was the first driver, which was, okay, let's do that. That, that sounds interesting. So where would we do that and what space? And we actually looked at a number of different spaces, everything from water conservation to, to Strava, but you're right. When it came to Strava, there were two things that had changed in the really 15 years since we'd first tried it. Number one was social media, like you just uh, alluded to. And the other was connected devices, wearable, things like Garmin devices and, and so forth. That we, we now had the ability to access activity data in a much more seamless way. 1995, we were basically asking somebody to go finish a run and then type down, hey, how far did you go and how fast? That's a lot of friction. By 2007, 2008, you could use, you know, whether it was a watch or even your smartphone, to capture that information. And so that made it much easier to then build an experience that people could enjoy. Yeah. How about personally? Like you, you know, you had started this successful company, taken it public, you know, you're serving on all these boards. What gave you the, you know, desire to want to become an entrepreneur again? And and again, like checking the ego at the door, like you're going back to, you know, you know, hitting the ground running. And I can imagine that is definitely like a, you know, a hit to the ego as well a little bit. But like what did why why did you want to do that again? Yeah. So I'll mention a couple of things. One is I'll be the first to warn anybody who thinks that boards uh, are the way to go. I always joke that sitting on boards is like eating junk food. It tastes really good in the moment. You, you feel like, ah, oh, here I am contributing. And, and then you leave that board room and it's like, I'm adding no value whatsoever here. Like the operators are the ones who really, you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are accountable and, and have it. And so I, I figured That's that why out. it's called a board. Yeah. I think you're right. It's just spelled incorrectly. Yeah. It's, it's, and there's a place for it. I actually, I, I do appreciate even today the time that I spend on boards, but it's a satellite activity. It can't be my core activity. So that, that was one driver. The other driver uh, goes back to sort of what happened in Vail. Once Michael and I got really intrigued by this idea of building a trusted kind of consumer brand, the thing we liked about it was that we'd never done it before. Like we were, we were back to being kids again and, and, you know, out there taking risk and kind of 
the playbook that we could deploy was the same one I talked about earlier. We don't know how to do this. Let's go find people who have. Let's let's go talk to the experts. Let's go. So when you talk about checking your ego, it's pretty easy because we don't know how to build a consumer brand. What, you know, what what's involved in that? And that that was really fun. Just the intellectual challenge of it. And then the third piece was I mentioned earlier, but it's important to know because as entrepreneurs, like this was solving a problem that he and I had. Right. People think I'm joking when I say like if we'd been the only two customers, but there is some truth to that. Like. We wanted to solve this because we needed something that would keep us motivated to be active. And so we were we were trying to craft an opportunity that that in its worst case scenario would would solve that problem. Mark, if my USC math is correct, you were about thirty-eight at the time when you started this thing. So did That's you right? I actually yeah. just calculated that as well. I got thirty eight. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't use one of those pats. I'm sorry. You should have gone to Harvard. Um, but <laughs> What I mean, what was that like? I assume maybe you had a family. I don't want to make an assumption, but I assume you had a family at the time. And um, you know, did you seek further financial success, or was it just because you were truly bored and you wanted something to do? There was this unfulfilled, you know, dream. It was a better timing, right? Like, what was it? Describe that situation and that, and and describe like what conversations you had in your head and perhaps with like your wife and others of like, what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So let me lay the, lay the context and then tell you sort of what was in my head. So in that time frame, now we're talking 2006, 2008, uh, 2009 was the official start date, but the, kind of through that period. So number one, um, I actually got divorced. So 2005, Lisa and I divorced. She's still one of my closest, dearest friends, but we're just, we're just much better as two friends raising two incredible boys. I've, we've got these twins, Jake and Charlie. So it was raising them. And so now they're five, six, seven years old. So they're beginning to go off to school. So there's there's some freedom that I have uh, in terms of just time and bandwidth. Um, and you know, we were co-parenting and splitting time there. Um, as I mentioned, I was thirsty for something beyond just serving on boards. Um, and I think, you know, your question about the financial one is interesting. My my thesis, and I learned this going all the way back at TA Associates, that there were two things. One is I am a big believer that if you want to be successful financially, own something, that you have the ability to influence its value. Um, I appreciate people who make incredible salaries every year, and it's, it's not to take away from that strategy. But for me personally, I, I am particularly intrigued by this idea of I'm going to go create something and then what can I do to increase its value? So I really, this idea of ownership and, and value. And, but the second thing I say is the minute that you start focusing on the financial outcome is pretty much the same minute that you're going to start to diminish the value. Like you, you just, right. you have to be, there has to be a higher order purpose to what you're doing. And right. if you do that, I believe the financials will follow. Um, at least they have for me twice in a row. Um, it's only a data set of two, but when we just said, look, we're not sure what the business model is going to be here, but we are going to, you know, there is a fundamental model that we're going to follow and we're going to think through this. So we were thinking like businessmen, but we were also maniacally focused on a customer experience. We wanted to build this great product that they could, that they would love and so much so that they'd want to pay us for it. That was the other key thing. We knew who our customer was. Um, then, the, yeah, then, you know what? Yeah. I'm I'm going after the financial prize like everybody else, but secondary to 
are we building something that people are excited about? You know, one thing I'm curious about, originally when you had the idea, you know, in the mid 90s, you were, I think you mentioned in your late 20s, is that right? You're like yeah, mid to late 20s. 20s, exactly. I think it was like 26. And, yeah, and so you end up starting another company, but then you came back to this, and now you're like in your late 30s, and you're starting, and obviously you had had some success and whatnot, but I think there's a lot of pressure that people put, especially people who are from a young age want to be entrepreneurs or have this desire to, to do entrepreneurship, that they think, you know, if I don't start something in my early to late, to you know, mid to late 20s, then it's going to be too late. I'm going to have a family, I'm going to have kids, and I'm just never going to do it, right? But clearly that's not true, right? You could start something at the, in your late 30s and early 40s, and there's just different there are different factors at that point, right? Like you're much more experienced, much more knowledgeable, maybe you have a better network, like the likelihood of success could be higher at that point. So, I mean, is there anything you can add to that? Because I think it's something that I see often. I've, I've personally like felt that before, that pressure of like, oh, I got to start something now if, if I don't do it now, you know? So just, yeah, thought I'd ask. No, I, I, I love the question because I think you're spot on. I think it's that you can absolutely be an entrepreneur at any point along sort of your, you know, the age continuum. You just have to acknowledge that the circumstances will be different. You have to, you're, you're, you're solving for potentially different problems. So you're right. When I was back 25, 26, really, it was just, there was so little risk. Uh, but the problem was I had no resources behind me. I had, I had no network really to follow. So, so I was starting from scratch. You fast forward to 38, you're right, 38, 39. Well, now I did have network. I did have research. I did have people I could reach out to, whether it was to capitalize the business, whether it was to find additional experts. So a lot of doors had been created because of my past success. The challenges I now faced were how to balance uh, being the parent that I wanted to be and, and being available to those kids. You know, time management became a much bigger issue. Michael and I tell this story. He and I have both been CEO of Strava twice in its 13-year history. I started as CEO. I had to step away because of basically family health issues. Michael was kind enough to step in, and, and he ran it. He ran it for four years. Then he had to step away due to a family health issue, and so I stepped back in because at that point, my life was stable enough. So very different uh, in terms of circumstance and, and so forth, but just as fun. Uh, I think it's what kept us young. It's yeah. you know that's the the beauty of this, and and I would encourage anybody who has that. The ones that bother me the most are the entrepreneurs. Like, well, I really want to, do it, but uh, I just I don't have the right idea. It's like that's I've never ended up building the idea that I started with. Like, uh, mm-hmm. let's just put that fallacy aside. Like, it's it's you got to have something so you can have conversations with people, but then you you yeah. navigate to what is an interesting business and. Yeah. And clearly, again, this was obviously something that you were really, really passionate about for it to come back and like want to do it again. And so tell us, look, when you first were trying to get it off the ground, I mean, what happened? Like, did you have to go out and raise money? Like, was it difficult, you know, pitching this and getting convincing people that this is a good idea or were people saying, no, this is a great idea, Mark, like, like we're totally in? Like, what was the feedback you were getting? Yeah. So in the very earliest days, one of the advantages that we did have given our prior success, was that Michael and I could sell fun for a while. And we did. For really the first year and a half, we were the investors. Uh, we were loaning the business capital, and then we, we converted that in our first uh, actual Series A round. So you're right. Th- there's a perfect example of something that was very different. If you go back to the Kana days, like we, I'll never forget, the first Series A we did at, at Kana was – you know, we sold 40% of the company for 700 grand. I mean, that was, you know, that was what we could do. That was the best we could negotiate. 
very different in 2008, 2009. Uh, so we self-funded uh, and we had, this is another thing that I talked to entrepreneurs all about. We had a vision, which was very much around, you know, big audacious goal, which is we want to support this global community of athletes across a broad spectrum of sports, bringing them together in one global community and, and have them feel like they're part of this team. That was the vision. Our go-to-market was we picked one sliver, and that was one very specific group. It was the road cyclist, a passionate roadie. Actually, we referred to them as mammals, M-A-M-I-L, middle-aged men in Lycra. Mm-hmm. That was our target audience. It was called, the strategy was go an inch wide and a mile deep. So we built very specific features and services for that group and started marketing to them and, and kind of using network to sort of find them. It was me, middle-aged man in Lycra who liked a mountain bike ride. And we went after that group. And that, by doing that, the good news was we did build traction. We built momentum. We had strong network effect so that when we decided to then go outside for capital, it wasn't just our backgrounds that people were betting on, but there was also certain, there was meat to the, to the story. They could start to see that we had good success in terms of conversion to subscription, good success in terms of sort of viral network effect and, and growth of the community. Well, so while the numbers were still small, yep. that was when we were able to raise the capital. Yep, exactly. That's yeah. That's that, that's definitely ideal, I guess, when you're going into like a, you know, pitch to like a VC is when you have those numbers and the experience. You have you have a little bit more leverage than if you're just getting started and just absolutely need the capital to hit the ground running. And so that's great. Um, so uh, I, I guess you know, in terms of, you know, throughout the last 14, 15 years, however long it's been, uh, so much has changed from technology standpoint, right? You know, you, you, we talk about the the you know how uh, t- social media has evolved. You know, connected devices have evolved. Um, how, like, where, where, where is all of this kind of going? Do you think? Like, you know, I, you know, we, we hear all these buzzwords now. You know, I, I don't want to say it, but you know what I mean. The, the, the metaverses and the, you know, this and that. where, where are things going in your opinion? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'll be the first to acknowledge that uh, one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur is that you are so heads down uh, in your little business that oftentimes it's very hard to understand what's what's going on through the forest. Um, so take anything that I say here with a huge grain of salt. We are really excited about the space. I think that, you know, things like the pandemic itself, I think, has taught the world that, boy, being healthy and living an active life has a lot of benefit. Um, and we've benefited from that. We've watched our community grow dramatically over these last couple of years and, and seen that, you know, it's not about chasing world records. It's not about being, you know, some hardcore athlete. You know, if you look at the largest growth in Strava, it's people who are walking and hiking and just realizing that getting out for 30 minutes and walking your dog, you know, three days a week, tremendous benefit to that. So, for us, we're excited. We're seeing a global population continue to embrace this idea of how connectivity be just part of my, my daily, weekly life. I think we're also seeing the innovation take place, whether it's indoors. You know, I know Peloton's, you know, faced some hard headlines lately, but look, they've, they've done something pretty magical around just sort of showing people that, you know, regardless of where you are, you can work out. Uh, and so whether it's indoors like that, 
whether it's the outdoor activities that we see people have just done for, for centuries and so forth, Strava sort of finds itself at the hub of that. We often joke that we're the, we're the connect of connected fitness. We're, we're bringing everybody together. Um, we work with, you know, just quick numbers, but gives you a sense of connected fitness. I mean, we have over 60,000 API partners today that, that connect either their devices or their apps into the Strava ecosystem so that you can have kind of this shared experience. And I, I just get really excited that we're scratching the surface. Um, you know, one example, in just the last 12 months, the, um, the ability for you to much more accurately track your sleep um, that's just one new set of data that we didn't have just a few years ago that's gotten really good. And that's whether you're using an Apple Watch or you're using an Aura Ring or you're using a Whoop device. There's, there's literally dozens of devices out there. Even your mattress can, can capture your sleep data. But by seamlessly bringing that data in to a place like Strava, we're excited because that's part of your active life. You know, are you recovering effectively? So I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but we're just excited because the population itself is is appreciating sort of an active life as a good life. Um, people keep people active. So we think community is a huge part of that. And then when we see the innovation going on across, again, uh, all kinds of different sort of metrics and so forth, we, we yeah. feel like we've got a long ways to go. We joke at Strava, we may be 13 years old, but we're just getting started. I'll give you a personal story, Mark, that I think, you know, at least I find it interesting. Maybe you will too. But my first introduction to Strava was back in, I want to say late 2014, early 2015. And the reason why, so Pat and I are both, uh, we come from an Armenian background and um, it was the centennial anniversary of the Armenian genocide. And so a group of these cyclists, Armenian, older, let's call it, when I say older, they were like 45 to 55 years old. And I was like, I'm 29 now, so I don't know, seven years ago, 22, 23 years old. And they wanted to organize to essentially gain recognition and get awareness, a cycling trip from Los Angeles, where we're at, to Washington, D.C., to deliver, like, basically, I don't know if it was a bill or, like, a recognition bill or whatever the Congress calls it, to Congress. And so... I was a part of that planning committee and board, right back to the word board. Uh, and that one was more interesting and fun. But Strava was really the basis of tracking the different kind of routes that they took throughout the United States. I think there was like, I don't know, there's got to be at least 25 plus legs that they did. I think they did two a day for like 13 days. And that was how, and they integrated with our website, how our audience essentially tracked where those cyclists were and where individually they were and where they were as a team. and. And I just thought that was, you know, at the time, this is 2015. So, you know, 2022, and you're like, oh, wow, what, you know, that's just like a part of life. But it was incredible to just kind of track the journey that these cyclists kind of had. And just thinking about the fact that because of an app like Strava, you're able to kind of do something like this. Sure, there's always a physical component, but the fact that you could bring a community both that is physically active in cycling, but also active in engaging with those that are active. I thought it was pretty incredible. So, you know, yeah. whether it's in uh, real life or the metaverse, day. yeah, it's, I think uh, you, you made my day. And that, that's, yeah. that's, it is such a good example of, of what Strava can do. Cause it's, uh, for those cyclists, it was simply a way for them to engage, but then there's this greater audience and, and they're delivering a message beyond, yep. beyond just sort of how many miles they rode. And yep. yeah, we see it time and again. Yep. It's a really yeah, fun anything, aspect of Strava that I, I never thought would happen. 
Yeah, if anything, I, I would think it, it's just gonna, like you said, you're just getting started. It's going to get even more and more important because, I mean, it is kind of scary, like looking at, you know, what where technology is going and, you know, we're just becoming, everything's becoming more and more digital and digital and digital. And so there, there's this whole like physical aspect. But the nice thing is, it's, it's a, you know, Strava is connected to like this physical thing that you do. You go out there, you run, you cycle, but there's this whole digital aspect that kind of brings it online, which, um, which is, I think, super, super cool. You know, Pat, it's funny you say there's, I'll share two things that are so important inside Strava. One is there's a metric that we actually track. And right now it's, uh, it's a ratio. It's 50 to one. So for every one minute you're in the app, we're finding that our athletes on average spend 50 minutes working out. And we're watching that ratio actually increase. So we're actually seeing them spend more time out being active in the app. Wow. And that to us is incredibly important because the other thing is, remember, our business is really simple. It's a subscription. It's a freemium business. You can use Strava for free as much as you like, but if you want to upgrade to some of the features, then there's a subscription opportunity. The reason that's important is that we don't, we don't need your highballs. We don't, we don't need you in the app X number of minutes per day. As long as you're active and you feel like Strava is contributing to that success and you're part of that community and you stay there, then the rest is magic. The rest happens. They have a great experience and Strava continues to grow as a business. And you're exactly right. It's I love those days when I put my phone in my back pocket. Strava's in the background, um, but when I finish, it's kind of fun to relive it. It's kind of it, it, it's fun for me to think about when I'm going to title my my ride or my run or my yeah. you know my skiing or my walk, whatever it is, and share that with some friends. And usually there's some trash talking or you know somebody's <laughs> giving me a hard time about my pace or whatever. But yeah. that's that's what motivates me to go out the next day and do it again. Yeah, that's that. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think it's easy for people to look at, you know, where things are going. You know, you, you see like robotics and AI and all this kind of stuff, and think that it's easy to think that that's going to be like at the forefront of it all. But sometimes thinking of it as like in the background of it all, like how Strava is, it's like powering it, but you're still being your your the human that you are, and you're still doing human things. Uh, is something that maybe it's hard to imagine, but it's super interesting that that's the way you guys approach it. Yeah. No, it is. It's the 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 best days are the ones that are muddy and messy and and raw, and you, but you just get to be yourself. And and that's if if we're helping people celebrate that, then we see good things happen, and we do. I mean, I could spend the next hour on what happens when you we get almost two billion activities just in the last year alone. When you have that much information coming in, the kinds of work you can then do as a community to help. We could spend a whole hour on just our Strava Metro project. We have 1,500 partners out there today using the data to rethink urban infrastructure, to rethink the way in which they're moving people and bicycles through major cities, um, looking at climate change issues. We have people who studied sort of basically looking at the way in which our Strava members move through parks and national parks and, and so forth so that we can fight wildfires more effectively. So that's what's so much fun is that as this group just goes out and has fun every day in this, this community now of about 95 million people, like just as, as active, ah, oh, there's so many great things we end up doing together. And that's, that's why even when you talk about your Armenian friends who does the cycling ride, it's just another example of like the power of, of shared purpose. Yep. Uh, and when you put it around kind of athletic endeavor or, or active activity endeavor, it's amazing what yeah, people are going to do. I love it. 
I love it. Well, I think we could sit here and chat for hours. Uh, you know, this has been an incredible conversation and, you know, can't thank you enough for joining us and sharing your story and wisdom and everything that you've like learned along the way. And uh, can't wait to see what comes next, you know, for you, but also for the company and uh, where things are headed. It's, it's really exciting. And hopefully, you know, we can meet in person someday soon. But this has been awesome. Thank you. Uh, guys, it's really my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.